Good morning. Great to see all of you here today. If you are a visitor with us, special welcome to you. We're glad that you're worshiping Christ with us this morning as we start this new series on the book of Ruth. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, maybe you're just kind of checking out Christianity today. The book of Ruth is one of the 66 books of the Bible. It makes one whole book the Holy Bible. And this is towards the front of it, so the beginning of it. No shame in using the table of contents. It's a short book. So go ahead and make your way to Ruth chapter 1. We're going to cover the whole first chapter today. And uh, we're starting this series on the heel of a series called Everyday Worship. We just went through that over the last several weeks, and we talked about specifically how we praise and worship God more than just when we gather together. Because, right, our God is great and greatly to be praised. And so it's not just for the hour and a half that we have in here on Sunday mornings, but how do we worship God every day of our lives? And so we talked about how do we worship Him through our marriage, how do we worship Him in our work and in our rest, and just these different areas of our lives. Now, I hope and I know that it was a challenge to many of you. Many of you have emailed me or talked to me how God has stirred your heart or gripped your heart in a couple of these different areas in your life. Let me just encourage you, if God stirred your heart over the last several weeks in that series, to continue to live out what God has been stirring in your heart. Let us as a church be doers of the word and not hearers only. And uh, so let me just encourage you, those that have been stirred by that. But at the same time, I know that some of you, you haven't told me this, but I know that some of you here worship God in every area of your life, but you're like, Ryan, my life is just a, it's a wreck right now. Like it's just, it's ruined and I don't know how to get to where I worship God in my marriage or in my work or even in my rest um, just because my life is just a mess. Um, well, that's why we're going through the book of Ruth. Uh, this is a, a message for you because it's a, it's a book that's all about people who are in a ruined state that God, through his providence and goodness, brings redemption. And so if you're saying, I don't know how to worship God in those areas because my life is just in pain and suffering, then, then specifically Ruth 1 will speak to you. But I hope the series as a whole helps you get to the place where you can worship God in every day of your life. So that kind of thought in mind, Ruth 1 is where we're going to start. And it's, it's a long chapter, so stay with me. Don't zone out. Read the first few verses, talk about it, and, and we'll, we'll read the whole chapter by the end. All right, so this is what it says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem, of Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. The names of their two sons was Malion and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These two, two took Moabite wives, and the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other one was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malion and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. All right, pause there just for a moment, and then we'll keep reading. But I want you to see, this is, a, this is not a fairy tale. The Bible is not a fairy tale book. It's a true story, and these are real people. It's saying their names and where they lived and what's going on in that time. And we'll slowly start to unpack that. But this is giving us a glimpse in these first few verses, just the, the climax of, of despair and sadness that we find where this book starts. A lot of famine and a lot of funerals that they're going through. So what do we do in the midst of those times of suffering and pain? And what are they going to do? So that's where verse 6 picks up. It says, then she, that's Naomi, rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, 
And they went on their way to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to the two daughters-in-law, Go and return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. That's really important. It's really important what we see there in verse 8. And we'll, we'll unpack that more. May the Lord deal kindly with you as, he is, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lift up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more so if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. That's what her name meant, was pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, to return from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for books like Ruth that teach us how to suffer well. Lord, you knew that we would need it, in this world that is broken and marred by sin. And Lord, I ask that as we walk through this book today and over the next several weeks, that you would help us to grow in our hope and in our faith in you. May we not become bitter by setbacks in our life or suffering in our life. Instead, I ask in your grace and in your goodness that we would learn to trust in your providential love. Now, in this moment of silence, let me invite you to to pray that God would speak to you through this passage, through Ruth chapter 1 today. Would you ask him to speak to your hearts now? Pray. And let me also invite you to, to pray for someone else that you know is in one of the worst of seasons of life. It might be you, but would you pray for for someone else as well that's going through a time of suffering, that they would be able to hear God's truth in their life and that it would help comfort them and change them. Pray for someone else now.
Lord Jesus, open up our minds that we would understand today and soften our hearts to believe the truth that we find in your word. It's in your name we ask. Amen. All right, Ruth chapter 1 is, is a, a chapter of despair. It's a chapter of desperation. And I'm, a, I'm a very appreciative for it. I love the brutal honesty of Scripture. I love that the Scripture talks about life in the same degree that you and I experience it, right? I love the reality of God's Word, that there's pain and there's suffering in this world, and we experience it. And we might not choose this pain that's in our life, this suffering in our lives. Oftentimes, a lot of that is from things that happen around us that we just cannot control, we can't impact. But one of the encouraging things that we'll see as we unpack this passage is that Scripture tells us that God is near to the brokenhearted. Those of you that are going through suffering and pain and hardship, God is near to you. And oftentimes, it's in the hardship that God speaks the loudest to us. I love how C.S. Lewis said it. He said, pain insists on being attended to. What that means is when we have pain and suffering in our life, like it insists to take our time and our thought to, to, to think about what about this suffering and this pain? What do we do with all this? And then he says this, God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciousness, but he shouts in our pain. He shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. And I believe there's a lot of truth in that statement. And so if God speaks to us the loudest in our pain and our suffering, if he wants to awaken a deaf world, what is he wanting to say to us? What is it that God wants us to believe about him? And as we believe those truths, how does God want us to live as people who love and follow him? Well, that's what we're going to find, those two things in Ruth chapter 1. What do we believe and how do we live? So the first thing I want us to unpack is this. What should we believe about God in the worst of times, in the worst of times. Now, we, we read Ruth chapter 1, these first few verses, and a lot of times we can skim over them really quickly. Like, these are the parts at the beginning of the books that we're like, let's get to the meat of the passage, right? But I want us to stop for a second and allow the reality of this moment to just like saturate our hearts and our minds. Because I feel like we can relate a lot to what's happening in this moment, but if we go too fast past it, we'll miss it. It says in verse 1 that in these days, and it says these are the, the days the judges ruled. Now for, for many of us, we're like, we don't even know what that means, the day the judges rule. Well, there's a book right before Ruth, it's called Judges, and that's the time it's talking about. That the, the time of Ruth is happening in the time of Judges. Now the time of Judges are rough times. If you read the book of, of Judges, it's hard to do your like personal quiet time in the Word through the book of Judges because you're like, what in the world is happening? I mean, the, the most common sentence that you'll find in the book of Judges is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so what that means is that there's no morality of right and wrong. It even says in the book of Judges, there is no king at this time that's helping to establish laws and lead things. And so people are literally like just doing whatever, like you, you think that's right? You go ahead and do that. I, I don't think that's right. I think this is right. And so there's this whole clash and division that's going on within the people on what is right and what is wrong. Any of us relate to that in our time, right? That's what's happening in this time when we read about Ruth, the time the judges are. Everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes. So this is the worst of times in a, in a moral sense, in an ethical sense. But it's also the worst of times in the economical sense. In verse 1, it says there was a famine in the land. Now, we read that and we're just like, famine, okay, there's not food there. 
But in an agricultural-based society, what that means is not just that people are hungry, but literally that people are out of work. There's no work for people. There's no, there's, the, the money is drying up. They can't sell their, their produce because they don't have any produce. And so they're struggling even on the economical side. Economically, it's the worst of times. And there's a little bit of sense of irony in here because it says in verse 1 that there's a famine in the land of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem literally means house of bread. That's like us showing up at Panera Bread and them having no bread for you to eat, right? Like there's a little irony in what's going on in that moment, but it's to highlight for us the sadness of this, the worst of times. Nobody's unified. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes morally. There's, economically, they're struggling. They, they're, they're starving. They don't have food to eat. And so on top of that, that would have been enough. Like that alone is enough weight to like weigh you down where you're just like, oh my goodness, that's a lot. But then there's an emotional component of this for this family. Emotionally, it's the worst of times. I mean, look at verse 5. What we read in half a verse, half a verse in verse 5, is literally this whole woman's world unraveling. We read verse 5 and we're like, oh, a woman was there and uh, she was left without her two sons and her husband. This is her world. This is her life. Half a verse, gone. I mean, this is the worst of times emotionally for her, um, economically for her. Like, it's just, it's all around. It's the worst of times. And I love how Naomi describes these times because I think it's spot on in verse 21. She said, I went away from Bethlehem full and the Lord has brought me back empty. This is the picture of, of chapter one. You want the title? That's why the title of this message is from full to empty, right? That is what's going on. This is why it's the worst of times. She moves away full and she returns empty. I mean, have we felt like this before? Is this not typical of our lives? We sit here and we look around and we feel empty-handed, right? So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to believe in times like this? Well, you've heard me say it before and I'll continue to say it. In the moments like these, we have to learn to trust the heart of God when we can't see his hand moving. We have to learn to trust the heart of God when we can't see his hand moving and acting. You see, this is something that that Naomi, by God's grace, is able to do. She's trusting in God's heart even though she can't see his hand. It's the worst of times, and yet the language that Naomi uses is incredible. She's bitter, yes. There's a hardness of heart, absolutely, that's there. But she looks in this moment and she still knows who the Lord is. She still believes in our moment of desperation. We're not going to run away from God. We're going to run towards God. So what is she believing about God that is keeping her close to God amidst her suffering? Well, look at verse 8. Look at what Naomi prays for her two daughters-in-law. Now, if you lost all that she's lost, and there's a bitterness in heart, what would you be praying for someone else? I mean, I don't know, but I would imagine for me, it probably would not be this nice of a prayer. But it's because of what she knows about the Lord. Look at verse 8. She said, return to your mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you. 
As you have dealt with the dead and with me, may the Lord grant that you may find rest. That word right there that she's saying to her daughters-in-law, deal kindly. This is a very, very important word in the Old Testament. And we've talked about it before, but it's the word hesed in the Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament is written in. And it's God's covenant-keeping love, which means that God has made promises in the Bible to his people and said, I will never let go of those promises. I will fulfill every single one of them. Why? Because of my loving kindness. And here we kind of struggle to translate it because we're like, what is, what's going on there? What is Naomi saying? When Naomi, in the midst of her worst of times, is saying, our God is still loving and kind and caring. Our God still has this hesed, this covenant-keeping kindness that he desires for others to know. And so in this moment, she looks at these, these ladies who've lost their husbands, and she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. May he keep his covenant-keeping love even with you. And then she says, may the Lord grant you rest. See, in this moment, she, she's had loss, and she's had pain, she's had suffering, and she is not letting go of the truth and the reality that our God is still a God of loving kindness. That's what she's holding on to in her bitterness and in her pain. She's still holding on to that. And not only is she holding on to the truth that God is loving and kind, she's holding on to the fact that there is a God in this moment, that God exists. You know, the temptation for us so often is when we go through the worst of times to say, man, times are so bad, there's no way there's a God. There's no way. Like, if times are this bad economically and morally and personally, then there can't be a God. Or if he's there, he's so transcendent, he doesn't care about his creation. That's not where Naomi is. She uses this, this covenant-keeping name for God, this loving-kindness name, the Lord, multiple times in, these, in this first chapter. She's not saying there isn't a God. She's, she's saying multiple times, there is a God. He's the Lord, and he's active, and he's moving. I'm not necessarily saying I agree with it, but I know and I see it's there, that God is still moving and active. And I love that the Lord exists and that he has a loving heart because this is who our God is. But at the same time, he is the Lord God Almighty. He has the power and the might to do something about our circumstances. I mean, think about this. God is strong enough to act. At the same time, we find in Ruth chapter 1, he's loving enough to want to. You see, she uses the title Almighty for God in verses 20 and 21. She looks at all the circumstances in her life and she doesn't understand them. She doesn't see how God's hand is moving in this moment. And yet she's not saying that our God is hampered from being providential and sovereign over things. Instead, she says in verse 20, For the Lord Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. And then again at the end of verse 21, Almighty has brought calamity on me. Now, many of us, we struggle with this. We're just honest. Like, we read this and it really it bothers us a little bit. Like, what are you talking about? That there's an almighty God. What, what, are you, what are you doing with that? I feel like, at least for me, one of the reasons why this bothers us so much is because we look and we're like, God, this is not how I would do it. I feel like I know better. And so, God, you're, you're in your providence and sovereignty are working in this way, and I wouldn't do it that way. I mean, I don't know about you, but I tell God what to do all the time, right? I think in my 40 decade or 40 years of, of life that I can tell an almighty eternal God how he should do things, right? 
But I do. We do, right? And so when things in our life don't go the way that we hoped or planned or thought, we get mad at God and we're saying, God, how can you be almighty? How can you be there? But not Naomi. In this moment, she keeps the reality of who God is and what he's capable of through all of this. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, Ryan, if you're saying God is almighty, he's all-powerful, and he's all-loving, then why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, that's a, that's a legitimate question that we ask. If God is all-loving and all-powerful, then why do bad things happen to good people? And I want to try to answer that question, but let me just tell you, I'm going to answer this question, and it'll be theologically accurate, but it's probably not going to do anything for your heart if you're in the midst of suffering and pain. And just be honest. But we need to understand the truth because it should shape what we believe and how we live. But you find in God's word that, that he tells us that this isn't how we made this world, okay? He didn't make the world broken like this. He made this world good. He even says very good. There was no death. There was no suffering. There was no pain. There was no loss. There's none of that there. And then Adam and Eve rebelled against God and sinned. And when sin came in the world, it broke everything. Everything. We love to think that our sin is just our own personal struggle and that it only impacts us. And when you, when you turn the pages of the Bible, the truth is sin impacts everything. Everything. From the way the weather works to the way that our bodies work, from the ways that our minds work to, 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 to life and death itself. I mean, it impacts everything. And so sometimes we experience the brokenness of this world because, yes, there's a real enemy of Satan that's out there that causes some of these things, but also there's collateral damage from sin. And not just our individual sins necessarily, but the sinfulness of humanity as a whole. You see, all of this is why we see the brokenness and pain and suffering in our lives and in the world. And a lot of times we look at that theological truth and we tell people, which this also doesn't do anything for the heart, we, we tell people, don't ask the why question. Don't ask God why. Don't ask the why question. He's just God and he's sovereign and this is the way the world was created and we mess things up. The hope that we have is that God is coming again to fix it, right? We know that to be true. That's our hope, right, in life and death that he's coming again to fix all these things. But so often we look at people and say, don't ask the why. Don't ask the why you're going through the pain and the suffering in your life. When for me, I'm like, have you read the Bible? I mean, the Bible is full of people who ask the question, why, God? Why? In the book of Psalms, there's this moment in King David's life where I, we don't know exactly all the stuff that's going on, but he literally is crying out to God and he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? He prays out to God, why have you forsaken me? And God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looks at David and says, David, that's good. Why don't you put that in the book? Let's put that in the book for everybody to read as you ask these questions of why. And it was so good that Christ, as he hung on the cross and died for our sins in our place, cries out to God the Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? He quotes Psalm 22. And God in his love and in his providence put Psalm 23 backed up to Psalm 22. I don't think that's an accident, right? People that are crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? I'm trying to trust in your heart, but where's your hand? It's not there. And then you read Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. That our God, in the midst of those moments, leans in to love and to care for us. 
And so many times in our lives, we're like, God, you're not doing anything. You're just completely absent. And we need to trust the heart of God, and it's for our good, for his glory. That he is working and he's moving things forward in his providence and in his sovereignty in order to glorify him. We need to grasp this. And this is not just in the book of Ruth. This idea that God is working when we can't see him working is found throughout the entire Bible. Let me highlight two for you real quick. There's a city named Dothan. It's only mentioned two times in the Bible. Okay, you're probably like, I've never even heard of Dothan. It's only two times in the Bible and there's a lot of words in the Bible. The first time we see it is in Genesis. Genesis 37. If you really go with your Bible, you remember back in the last part of Genesis, it's all about this guy named Joseph. In Genesis 37, Joseph is in the city of Dothan. While he's in Dothan, his brothers, who can't stand him, there's so much conflict and rivalry, they go and they take him and sell him into slavery. I mean, you think you have it bad with your siblings? You got nothing on this. Like Jerry Springer had nothing on this family, right? All right? They sell him into slavery. And you would look at that moment and you're like, God, where were you in Dothan? Like, how are you going to let this guy who you gave dreams and visions of what you wanted to come in the future and you seemingly took all of that away as he was sold into slavery? What are you doing, God? What are you doing? Dothan's mentioned a second time in 2 Kings chapter 6. We're not going to unpack all that for extra credit. If you want to, go read that chapter. But God rescues and saves his people in a miraculous way through angels' armies. I mean, it's amazing. God's people are about to be enslaved, right? They're about to be drug off because they're going to lose this battle, lose this war. And God shows up and rescues and saves his people in the city of Dothan. Now you'd be like, wait a second, God, why didn't you show up in Joseph's life like you showed up in 2 Kings to rescue his people? But the reality is that God's hand was working in both parts. Joseph just didn't see it until later in life. If you read towards the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph now has gone through all this suffering and pain, now is in second in command over all of Egypt to help the Egyptians and others through this great famine. And there he looks at his brothers who are now standing before him. Again, he could do anything he wanted to him. He could throw them into prison. And instead he looks at his brothers and says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What Joseph is saying in that moment is like, I had no idea how God's hand was working in that moment in Dothan the first time. But now as I stand here, I have 20-20 vision to see that God's hand was working. Couldn't see it in the first time, but he saw it in the second. Both moments in the city of Dothan, God's hand was moving. Even though the people in that moment might say, I don't see it. I don't know how. Now what we find in Genesis and Ruth and 2 Kings, this is just a shadow of the substance of what we find at the cross. You talk about the worst of times where you look and you're like, God, where are you? Where's your hand? Is it moving? Is it doing anything? Because literally an innocent man is hanging on a cross and he's dying a criminal's death. Where are you, God? Why aren't you moving? Why aren't you doing anything to rescue him? Literally people from the cross are saying that to Jesus. We'd say, God, there's no way that you could do anything good in the midst of this moment. And yet, this very bad thing that happened to Jesus in the worst of times, the worst of times, turned out to be a really good thing for you and I if we believe in Jesus. A really good thing. So church family, let us trust in the heart of God through the difficult times when we cannot see his hand moving. Let us believe the truth that God exists. He is there. He's not distant that he's loving enough 
to care about you, and he's mighty enough to do something about it. Will we believe those truths like Naomi did, even if our hearts seem to be bitter in those moments? And we believe that. But now what do we do? That's what we believe, right? This is what we believe about our God. But what do we do with that? Well, one of my favorite movies is The Lord of the Rings. I really enjoy it. And there's a scene in there between two people, and it kind of hits what's going on right here. This kind of transition for, from belief to, to action. And one of the main characters in this very difficult, hard time says to his friend, I wish it need not happen in my time. I wish this pain, this suffering, this hardship did not happen in my time. And his friend said, so do I. And so do all who see such times. But that's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Many of us are going through hardships and hard times, and we didn't choose them. We don't want them now. But that's not for us to decide. We're in them. We don't get to choose the times. We don't get to choose when we were born or when we die. We don't get to choose that. There's somebody that has providence over all of those things. And then it says, but all we have to decide is what to do with the time that's given us. So what do we do in moments like this? Let me phrase kind of point two here of how we live in faith in the worst of times. How do we live in faith in the worst of times? By, by contrasting, right? I want to show you the, the negative response of how we respond to times like this and then the positive, okay? Because in Ruth 1, what we see is first a negative response through, to, to the worst of times. And you find it in this man, Elimelech. So this man, Elimelech, he's in the land that God has promised them. Bethlehem is a, a, a land that this is called the promised land. God said, I want you to be here. I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. Be here. Just enjoy the land and feed on the faithfulness of the Lord. But we see as hardship comes, Elimelech, what he does is he chooses compromise. In the worst of times, he chooses to make compromises. He leaves the promised land of God instead of trusting in God. And he moves his family to this place called Moab. Now, I don't have time to unpack all of Moab, but it's a mess. I mean, there is no temples of worship there for uh, the Lord God. There's all these idols. Uh, there's incest and stuff that's going on. Like Moab, it doesn't say this in Scripture, but their family tree looks like a, a pull cue. Like that's kind of what it is. Like it's, it's a mess. They've got all this idol worship. There's just all these terrible things that are going on in Moab that you can read in the book of Numbers and Judges. And in the midst of this hard time, they seem to have a little bit more food than Bethlehem does. So instead of trusting the Lord and remaining where the Lord has told him to remain, he chooses comfort over trust. And I believe what it's highlighting as we read this is that Limelech has the same temptations that we have when we go through hardships. <laughs> We are tempted to abandon the bread of heaven for world's provisions when we're going through hard times. That's what he does. And it's so tempting to do that. It's so easy to do that because the food that's found in the unpromised land seems to offer something a little more real and a little more tangible, a little easily available in contrast to God's promises, which constantly are testing our faith and pushing us to trust in him. And so instead of staying where he should, where God had called his people to remain, he chooses comfort over the Lord Christ. This is what he does. And this is what we should not do. 
Because the reality is when we move away from God's mission and God's people, it is really hard to find God's blessing. It's really hard to find God's blessing. And I know that we live in a transient world. They say that most people in big cities transition out about every three to three and a half years. I get it. So maybe you're going to move in the next 18 days or in the next 18 years. I don't know. Or 18 months, whatever it might be. But just something that's laid on my heart as I've read this and thought about this this week is that for many of us, many of us, we look and we try to find a job that we like or a neighborhood that we like or a school system that's great. And we're never asking if I'm going to disconnect myself from the ministry and mission of West Cabarrus Church, where does God want me to plug into? And so I get, I get emails from you guys from the, the best of intentions of like, hey, I'm moving to the city. I've already accepted the job. Uh, is there any churches that you know of in that area? Which breaks my heart that you've already bought the house, you've already picked where you're going to live and where you're going to work, and you haven't even thought about yet what church you're going to connect to. I think at least it should be 1B, right? Like, do I like this job? Is this a good fit? Like, is there a church in the area? Because if we want to kind of run away and, 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 and pull ourselves away from God's people, then we will struggle to find God's blessing in our life. And that's what we found here. And so let me just challenge you, to encourage you to think about the internal impact that it's having on your family, specifically for the men. Because I think, I don't know for sure, but I think if we had Elimelech right here, and we're like, Elimelech, why in the world did you move your people from God's promised land to Moab? He'd say, I'm just trying to provide a roof over their head and food for them. Like, that's what I'm trying to do. So I'm trying to be a godly leader. And men, I would say, we have to raise the standard of what it means to be a godly man. Providing a roof over your head and food in your stomach for your family is not the, the, the standard of which to be a godly man. And you know how I know that? Because possums do that, okay? <laughs> possums provide food for their, for their young and a roof over their head, right? Like, I think there's a different standard for us created in the image of God and how we lead our families. And so I would just challenge you, I would encourage you to... Yes, consider what school your kid goes to and what neighborhood they live in and what sports team they're a part of, but you better be thinking about the eternity of your child. You're thinking of what team that your, your, your child is a part of for a year or a season of their life or what neighborhood they're going to live in or what school they're going to be in for 12 years. Are you thinking about the church that they'll connect to and where they will spend eternity with the same fervor as you look at neighborhoods and schools? And I just think there's something that God is showing us in the midst of the moment. Because what we do is we look at hard times, I just got to get a new job, I got to move to a new city, and we're not asking some of the eternal questions because our minds are set on the temporal. May we not do that. That's what Elimelech did. Instead, let me encourage you or challenge you in the worst of times to act like Ruth did. To act like Ruth did. You see, Ruth, in the worst of times, she's lost her husband, she's lost her father-in-law, and in this moment, it'd be easy for her to turn back to the comforts of home. It'd be really easy for her. But instead, what you find is a wholehearted diving in to who the Lord is. She makes this statement to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And you see this in verse 16. He's, she says, your God will be my God. This is a huge statement. This is a conversion statement. She's saying, I'm leaving behind my past and my idols, and I'm pursuing your God. Now, we don't know this for sure, but how she got there, I think, is through Naomi's suffering. I think the way that Naomi suffered and the way that Naomi talked and the way that Naomi went through and suffered well, Ruth is like, I want some of that. I don't understand how in the world you're suffering and you're going through that that way, 
but that's what I need. And so your God will be my God. And so she, she's changed. And then she looks with this commitment of endurance to say, wherever you go, I will go. And we had this passage read at our wedding when we got married. And a lot of times you hear this, this statement from Ruth read at weddings. But you need to understand this commitment that Ruth made to her mother-in-law is deeper than a marriage commitment. And that's deep. And the reason why I say that is because we look at, at marriage and we say, until death do us part. Right? That's the covenant commitment of marriage. Ruth in this statement says, I'm going to go where you are. And I'm going to worship your God because he's my God. And even when you die, I'm still not leaving you. I'm going to stay there until I die, and then they're going to bury me beside you. That's next level commitment. She's like, I'm in. And this is a bold, huge commitment that she's making. Because she could cling to the comforts of family and, and what she knows in Moab because she's going to Bethlehem. That's not her home. That's where Naomi lived, not her. And not only is it leaving home and the comforts of home, She's entering into rejection and racism. Like, the Israelites did not like the Moabites. They had been in wars and battles together, and they didn't like them. So literally, when they show back on the scene and they walk into the town, the whole town's in a stir. And they're like, is this Naomi? Who is this lady with her? Like, what is she doing here? And there's racist tension that's happening. I mean, it's like the pinnacle of it that's happening in this moment. She knew this when she made this decision to go back. Ruth knew it. She knew I'm going to leave behind family that I will never see again. I will leave behind comforts and, and, and home in order to go where I can worship the Lord, where your God will be my God. This is huge. She's not clinging to home. She's not clinging to comfort. She's clinging to the Lord Christ. And I believe she understands something that we desperately have to understand and grasp. Ruth believes that life with God, listen to me, listen to me on this. Ruth believes that life with God in a place where she would be mistreated is better than life without God in a place that would be comfortable. Let me say it one more time. Ruth believes that life with God in a place where she would be mistreated is better than life without God in a place that would be comfortable. How many of us believe that way? God, I want you more than anything. It's the worst of times, yes, but as long as I have you, that's where I want to be. I'm not going to run and compromise. I'm not going to run away from the comforts of this world. I'm going to look to you, the God of all comfort, to give me the comfort and endurance through this. Now, don't, don't mishear me this morning. The book of Ruth, even though it's got Ruth as a title, Ruth is not the hero of this story. It's not. Even some of the things that Ruth does in this first chapter is really great. But the grand narrative, the beauty of God's word, is that what Ruth is is just a shadow of something better. The redemption that we find in the book of Ruth is pointing us to what our hearts long for, a greater redemption. You see, Ruth left her home, her comforts of Moab, and came to Bethlehem, a place where she would be rejected and despised. She did that. We read through the Bible and we get to the New Testament and we hear about God who left his home and all of the comfort and all of the glory of it. And where did he come? He came to Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem knowing that he would be rejected and despised and ultimately he would go to a cross and die. Why? 
Because we had a debt of sin that we couldn't pay, and he could. He came and he died on the cross for us in our place. Why? So we could move from ruin of our life of sin and death to redemption and glories forever. That's why he did this. He is the true one that takes us from ruin to redemption. It's found in Christ and in Christ alone. You see, Ruth right here, she's saying, I'm committed to you, Naomi. I'm never going to leave you. Even to your death, I'm never going to leave you. Because Christ went to the cross and died in our place, now we can say, God, you'll never leave me. You'll never forsake me. You've defeated death, the very thing I thought would separate me from you. You took on the suffering and pain that I thought was the end of all things and hopelessness. No, now we, through Christ and his death and his resurrection, we have hope in the worst of times. You see, Naomi, or Ruth, rather, might have endured hard times of gossip and slander and racism. But Jesus, literally, on the cross, people were speaking at him and saying wicked things of him. And he endured. He endured to the very end to bring about our salvation, to bring about our redemption. This Jesus is literally, I don't know how many greats, but great, 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 great grandchild of Ruth. You see, what we see in Ruth is just a small glimpse of the redeeming work that Christ would do on our behalf. So church family, as we come now to the Lord's Supper, this is what we're remembering. The redeeming work of Jesus. As he gave his body, as he gave his blood in our place. He left his comforts of of home in heaven and he came to Bethlehem. He gave his life in order to take it up again, that we would have hope both in life and in death, in suffering and pain and in times of pleasure. And so God's word would say to those of us that are believers, come and take this in remembrance of him. And so if you are a believer, this is actually called the Lord's table, and I don't get to invite uh, whoever I want to to sit at the table, the Lord has already sent out the invitation. <laughs> His word says, if you have trusted in Christ and you believed in him, then come and take this in remembrance of him. And at the same time, he would say, if you're not a believer, God's word says, if you haven't trusted in Christ, you haven't looked at him and said, you are my God, you forgive me of my sins, then God's word says, let this pass because it doesn't mean anything to you. And there's no shame in that for you not to take this. Actually, God's word says if you take this and you're not a follower of Christ, that you actually eat judgment on yourself. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds bad, all right? But this is what God's word says. For those of us that know and trust Jesus, come to him now. Confess your sins and know that because of his death and his resurrection, because he gave his body and his blood for us, we can be forgiven. And so what I want to do for those of us that have trusted in Christ I want to give you a few minutes to pray and confess your sins to the Lord in the silence of this room. Confessing those. And then as we come out of that, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And this is a reminder that he has cleansed us of our sins. This is our assurance of our pardon. That we might think there's no way that God can forgive me of my sins. Yes, his body was given for you. His blood was shed for you. And for others of us, that if you don't know Christ, I would challenge you this time to search your heart and to pray to him. Maybe this is your moment where you say, I want you to be my God. I want to confess my sins and be forgiven. I want to pursue you. If you pray to him, I promise you, he will rescue and redeem you. He will take you from ruin to redemption. So let me start us in prayer by giving us a few things to confess before the Lord.
give you a moment to pray and then I'll close this here in a bit. Let's pray together.